If everyone can turn to Second Timothy chapter four, Second Timothy four, I'm going to read the first eight verses. Second Timothy four, verse one, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. And I'll stop reading there. Now, um, I thought it'd be good to look at this passage because the Apostle Paul um, is... Uh, He's speaking historically or personally of his own time of ministry. And we know that God used him to um, accomplish many things and to uh, bring us many of the books of the Bible. But the Bible also tells us that Paul is a figure and a type of the believer. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says in verses 15 and 16, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So, Christ showed mercy to Paul for a pattern. And actually where it says to them, um, it's in the genitive case and it should be of them. Of them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And a pattern is the same idea as when um, um, someone is sewing and my wife sews a lot. She has boxes of patterns. And you get the pattern, and you lay it out, and you cut the fabric according to the pattern. And and that's exactly what um, is in view here with Paul when we look at his life in the Bible. It's a pattern of the believers, of the elect of God. It says in 2 Timothy 4, uh, verse 1, and we're going to... Not go through every verse, but we'll try to cover um, these eight verses if possible, where we're going to see that here the Apostle Paul is an example or a pattern of the believers that have completed their course or finished their ministry and then are ready to 
receive the crown of life, which, which would come on the last day. But in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4, it says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. The word quick is an Old Testament, Old English word that means life or living. It really is saying that Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead. And and that statement is found a few times uh, in the New Testament. In Acts 10, it says in verse 42, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. That same statement is made a handful of times in the New Testament. And basically God is saying Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. Well, remember what God says in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, verse 32, he... um, has been answering some of the Sadducees about the resurrection. And it says in verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. The word living is the word quick, the same Greek word. He's the God of the quick, but he's not the God of the dead. Now, that tells us, when we, we look at the statement that Christ will judge the quick or the living and the dead, that it's God's program to judge the living as well as the dead. Or in other words, to judge His elect. He's going to judge His elect as well as all the spiritually dead, the unsaved people of the world. Now, in what way is he going to judge? Take a look at Second Chronicles chapter 6. Second Chronicles 6 and verses 22 and 23. If a man sin against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear, and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou from heaven and do and judge thy servants by requiting the wicked, by recompensing his way upon his own head, and by justifying the righteous, by giving him according to his righteousness. So the one servant is recompensed with his wickedness, and the other servant is justified in righteousness. And and basically that's what this whole time period is about, or what's happening is that God has brought everyone before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it does say in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, this is a a proof that um, it has always been God's plan to leave His people on the earth to go through the day of judgment. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word we, if you were to look up 
that word in Second Corinthians 5? It's used, uh, I, I don't know how many times, just repeatedly in the whole chapter. In every single instance in Second Corinthians 5, it's the child of God. Every other verse. Just look at um, verse uh, 6. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in a body, we are absent from the Lord. Are the unsafe people of the world confident in that? No. The we, the plural pronoun, is referring to the true believer. Verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Again, each plural pronoun we refers to the believer. From verse 1 all the way to verse 10, and after verse 10, all the way to the end of the chapter. Anybody can check it out, and you'll see that. Therefore, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, is referring to the believer, the true believer, the elect. And the word appear is Strong's number 5319, the Greek word that's translated as made manifest in in some places. It's that word that, that describes the Lord Jesus' time on earth when he appeared. Uh, he was made manifest. And that's why we say, well, he died for sin at the foundation of the world, but then he entered into the world. He was born, went to the cross to make manifest the things that he had already accomplished. Well, God's elect have already had their sins paid for. That's not what God is doing, and we're certainly not paying for our sins because we would perish if we tried. But our sins were paid for in Christ at the foundation of the world when he was the lamb slain at that point, and all of our sins were paid for and we were in him at that point. And and so now God brings to pass judgment day and he leaves his people, a great multitude, which is really, uh, if you look at the sum total of everyone that God would save throughout all history, the vast majority of them are alive and living on the earth at this time and, and going through judgment day because God saved many more in a little season of great tribulation than he had in all previous time. And and so there, it's an excellent representation of all the elect of God who are left, left. I don't want to say left behind because I, I don't like uh, some of the connotations of that, but we're left on the earth to go through the day of judgment and in so doing... We're making an appearance or it, uh, it's a manifestation of appearing before Christ's judgment seat because Jesus is the judge of the world and he's presently on the judgment throne and he already has taken action in judgment and shutting the door of heaven and ending his salvation program and, and that is punishing the wicked. Every unsafe person has been punished by that action that God took. And God took the action. We didn't shut the door. 
We don't have that kind of ability. Just like God shut the door of the ark. Noah didn't shut the door. God shut him in. And and so God has taken that action that has brought, um, a, it's kindled a spiritual fire to the inhabitants of the earth, and all the earth's inhabitants are burned. That's why it says in Isaiah 24 and verse 6, Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. So the inhabitants are burned, but somehow, mysteriously, there's a few men left. Everyone else in the earth is burned, but few are left, or few remain. And who are they? Well, many are called, but few are chosen. It's the elect, because the same fire, the same fire and brimstone or spiritual fire that burns up the wicked man does no harm to the child of God because they're already saved. They've already been brought into the kingdom. Their sins have already been paid for. And so the the fiery wrath of God's anger destroys the unsaved but for the true believer, it is similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are protected by the Son of Man within the fire, and they come out, and not only did the fire not burn them, but there was not even any smell of smoke. It didn't harm them in any way. They were not destroyed, but the king's servants, the king of Babylon's servants, they were burned up when they even got close to the entrance of of um, the furnace and so the Lord's people are going through the fire and yet they are not injured or harmed or destroyed as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says in verse 12 where everything is laid upon the foundation who is Christ now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver precious stones, wood, hay, stubble every man's work shall be made manifest for the day, shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And what does it mean to abide? It continues, it remains, it it endures the fire. The inhabitants of the earth are burned, few men left. It is not destroyed by the flame. And so that's the idea of this manifestation of God's elect before the judgment seat of Christ. They're continuing through the day of judgment unto the very last day. And then on the last day, when God destroys the earth, and how is he going to destroy it? With fire. The fire, the the spiritual fire, turns into a literal fire that consumes the creation that that is under the curse and consumes all the wicked so that they are literally burned up at that point. Few men left, even then. Few men left. They weren't burned up by the fiery end of the world, but they're exalted into the heavens, and now they're they're forever with the Lord. 
And at that point, it has been made manifest. The judgment of God concerning them is, I find no fault in them. The Lord has justified them through through Christ. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And every child of God will be found to have done good. Will will have done good. Why? Because we're we're just good people? No. Because all sin is gone. It's been paid for. There's there's no bad that God can find because every single sin has already been paid for by Christ and and therefore God is counting or imputing Christ's righteousness to them and he sees good works, the work of the Lord on their behalf and he does not see any evil deeds of any kind. Well, let's go back to 2 Timothy 4 and again uh, verse 1 speaks of Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own loss shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. That time will come someday, won't it? Someday in the future. They will not endure sound doctrine. What do you think about that statement? Are you kidding me? Everybody's probably saying, because everybody knows. Everybody knows. It's now. But what if you read this a hundred years ago? What if you read that a hundred years ago and you were in the church and, well, there are some reasonably faithful churches and you read The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. You might think, well, maybe it's that denomination or or something like that. But in other words, you might have some questions as to when that time might be. Now, there's absolutely no question. There, There is no question in the mind of God's people. It's now that... The uh, professed Christians of the world within the churches and congregations do not endure sound doctrine. And we could go through a list of doctrinal things that the churches reject, dismiss, ignore, and have no interest in whatsoever. And instead, they, they have heat to themselves, teachers having itching ears. And when you heap something it it's it indicates there's a lot of it there's a lot of it if you start heaping coals of fire you're you're shoveling and the pile is getting bigger and bigger and and uh, that's part of the idea here that it is very prevalent it's everywhere today in the churches and congregations and even outside in ministries and things like that we're living in a, a very deceptive, spiritually dangerous time where you can't trust anyone for every brother will utterly supplant 
And and so we read this today, and it's one of the reasons why we know we're at the time of the end, that we're at the end of the world. Because when we read these kinds of statements, that, whether it's concerning uh, a falling away first in Second Thessalonians 2, or false prophets will come in Matthew 24, or if we read about the world, that iniquity will increase, or Romans 1, when we read Romans 1, that God will give them up. We don't, we don't wonder when will that happen. We don't think, well, uh, I wonder what the world will look like if that were to happen. We see it. We know it. And, and the believer, the child of God, reads these statements and we think, oh yeah, oh yeah, it, it is like reading the daily paper. It's like reading the newspaper because it's happening right now all over the earth. Well, uh, it goes on in verse 4, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. There is a good verse in Titus, the next book over, Titus uh, chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And uh, basically a fable is identified as a commandment of men. We we like to think of a fable as some sort of fairy tale, but but the biblical definition is more, it's a commandment of men. There's Jewish fables because they elevated their traditions above the teaching of the Word of God. And, and so God speaks of them as Jewish fables. And what a fable accomplishes is also said there, they turn from the truth. So the truth is what God has said in His Word. Men come along, distort it, pervert it, alter it, change it. You know, they, they have a new understanding of it. And it's nothing but a fable uh, that, that turns people from the truth. And um, this is in keeping with the, with the previous verse, that they don't endure sound doctrine. If you're not enduring sound doctrine, then you're you're going to go after fables, after the commandments of men. Then in verse 5, 2 Timothy 4, it says, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And again, the, the Apostle Paul is a pattern of the true believer, a pattern of God's elect. And he says he's now ready to uh, be offered. Uh, if you look over at Philippians 2, it says, and uh, the, the word offered is found here in Philippians 2, 16 and 17, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. So it is a word that is associated with sacrifice. And, of course, uh, the child of God has been called upon 
to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. And and God's people have done that um, as the Lord has worked within them to to uh, perform his will, to keep his commandments. And now Paul, representing the elect, is ready to be offered and the time of his departure is at hand. Well, how does he know the time of his departure is at hand? Historically, we're not told. Of course, if you would look, Google the Apostle Paul and, and his life, there's all kinds of people who will fill you in on the history the Bible doesn't mention, but we can't trust that. All we know from the Bible is that Paul went to Rome and then he was in his own hired house for two full years, two whole years. That's the last we hear of him. And yes, there's stories about what happened to him, that he, he was put to death by the Romans. But but still, according to the biblical information, there's nothing that speaks of Paul's departure in that sense. But when we understand he's a type and figure of the elect who is saying that he's ready to be offered and the time of his departure is at hand. At hand is a translation of the same word that was translated instant back in verse 2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. It's the word um, that's in First Thessalonians 5, verse 3. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them is is the word um, at hand. So sudden destruction is upon them. That means it's, it's right there. It has come. It is at hand. And, and so the time of the Apostle Paul's departure is upon him. It's at hand or it's upon the elect. And he knows it and we know it. Because the Bible indicates that God does not conceal that kind of information from his servants. He, he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. A wise man's heart discerneth time. The time of my departure is at hand and judgment. That, that's what the Bible says concerning the people of God. It, it's, you know, when people say no man knows or Christ is coming as a thief and, and what they mean by that is a, a thief comes suddenly and you can't know. Well, then you show them First Thessalonians 5, 4. It says, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. And as someone pointed out a while back, if you look at John 10, if Christ comes for you as a thief, he's coming to destroy and kill you. It says the thief comes to destroy and to kill. And, and, and so if somebody insists you cannot know and he's coming as a thief, well, it may be it it more than likely is that you don't know and he will come for you as a thief because the the biblical language indicates that Christ comes unexpectedly to the unsaved and and by the way you know today is different in one sense especially from before May 21 2011 with the news going out about uh, a date 
before May 21, 2011, a lot of people were skeptical and doubted, but but there there was a, a troubling of mine, and more people were open to receiving it. Today, today everybody in the church is speaking almost with one voice. No man knows a day or hour. And we know this because it's happening all over the earth. When we advertise, and we, we've been putting forth advertisements in practically every nation, every, every advertisement are, is commented on, and here comes the individuals from the church. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. On every advertisement we're running in every nation, and even many Muslims, no man knows or Allah doesn't, uh, or uh, only Allah knows, and no man knows, no man knows. And people of the world are supremely confident, just supremely confident it won't come, and we'll see you on October 8th. And uh, after all, they've lived through 10 end of the worlds. And so here comes another end of the world. I mean, the mindset of the church is locked. The mindset of the people in the world is locked into place. It's like granite. They know that Christ isn't coming. Absolutely. They know. And what does the Bible say? What did Jesus say? When they think not. When they think not, he will come. And if there's ever been a time that qualifies as when the world thinks not, it is now. They're actually, in their attitude, fulfilling the scripture that they will be of a mind that it will not happen, that Christ will not come. Of course, that's not the mind of the true believer, of the one that God has saved, uh, but it is um, the mind of the rest of the world. Um, very rarely, very rarely do you find someone uh, who who is open and and say, well, every every now and then, like of uh, 500 comments, there's one little voice, and you got to have a lot of courage when 500 people just spoke uh, with a hammer and said, no way, and here comes this one little voice. Well, why don't we wait and see? Maybe, you know, let's, let's wait on the Lord or something like that. It, very rare. Uh, of course, we don't know what people are doing that, that aren't commenting, but it really is conveying the mindset of the world that is more in place now than it's ever been before in history. Well, the, the time of his departure is at hand. The word departure is the same word from Philippians, Philippians 1, and uh, the these just crazy verses here. <laughs> these verses in Philippians 1, from the world's perspective, are insane. It's insane for, for this uh, statement in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 
Call the psychiatrist in. <laughs> what did you say? I mean, you, they'll keep you in therapy for a few years, believe me. <laughs> you have a desire to depart. <laughs> and the world doesn't understand it because they love the world. They love the world. They love the things of the world. And they're, they're desperate to hold on to the world and their life. They can have disease. They can start having limbs amputated, organs removed, and getting older and more sickly, and and inching along in age, and they just want to hang on. They just want to hang on, no matter the condition. And that's because there's a deep-down realization that this is it for them. This is it. This is all they get. And this is their inheritance. But that's not so with the child of God. The true believer knows we have eternal life. We, and, and not just existing, you know, people tend to exist in this world day after day after day, watching the TV or, or doing things, you know, where your heart's beating. But but you're not really living, and certainly if you're not living for God or apart from God, you don't have life. No matter what they say when they tell us get a life, well, the reality is you're the one that lacks life because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you have Christ, you have life. And And God's people are given life, eternal life, and and then we start reading about it in the Bible, a new body, a new complete body, not like a new kidney <laughs> or or a new, uh, you know, other body part, like a new knee because my knees are wearing out, but a new body, head to toe and inside and out, blood, bones, skin, all gone, new spiritual resurrected body. And with this body, it is, there is absolute perfection. It will not get sick. It will not feel pain. There, it, it will never shed a tear. And, and just when we look at these things, and that body will never die. And, and on top of that, God will give a place that will be suitable to this body where His people will live, not exist, but live forevermore in the most joyous state imaginable. And so, you know, we we have to compare these things. The world doesn't focus on those things of the Bible, the statements of God. They They just see this world, and so they desperately want this world to continue. I'll see you on October 8th, of course, is their hope. And and they don't even want to think for a second of the possibility that God certainly covers in depth in the Bible that the world will end. And and so they just don't understand the idea. But when we look at what the Bible says and we look at the struggle that God's people go through in this life within themselves with flesh and spirit and all the the sinful circumstances of this world, of course, it's not crazy 
it's, it's very rational to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's a true statement. And not only that, it, it makes sense to desire to depart. Wouldn't you desire, if you're living in a slum in India, to live in a palace? Wouldn't, wouldn't you desire that? And they have some wonderful palaces over in India. And, and right outside, people living in slums and in the extreme poverty. Of course, you're going to desire the better. And, and so God's people desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better than going from the slums to um, the king's palace. This is um, just incredibly greater. It's an exceeding far greater eternal glory that awaits the people of God. All right, let's go back to... Oh, oh, the, the word depart is, it was here in verse 23 and it's translated one other place in Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, beginning in verse 35, it says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return. That's the word, the word return when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Or when he will depart from the wedding, then he's coming for his bride, his his people. Where's his bride? And why does he have to knock? Where are they located? The, the, The wedding, according to Revelation 19, is judgment day. The word wedding is the same as marriage where the Lord speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the bride is in view in Revelation 19. She has made herself ready. Well, um, here, this uh, idea of uh, the marriage, if we turn to Matthew 25, it says in verse 10, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage or the wedding, and the door was shut. The door shut. So the bride, the elect, are inside the door, and and then come people knocking at the door, and Christ goes and deals with them. He has conversation with them, a discussion with them, letting them know you can't come in. The door is now shut. Well, when he returns from the marriage supper of the Lamb, from the wedding, from the day of judgment, when he has completed the pouring out of his wrath upon all the unsaved outside of the door, he comes for the bride. He's returning, departing from the uh, the sacrifice. That's really what the marriage supper was of all the unsaved people of the earth. And he comes to the door where they're safely and securely inside. And he knocks at the door. And, and then they're, they're, uh, uh, very ready and willing to open the door. And then God, uh, is forever with his people. That would be on the last day. Okay. Let's go to second Timothy, back to second Timothy four. And verse 7 says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Well, the um, the Greek word translated as as fight, there's actually three Greek words. Strong's number 73, 74, and 75. They're all related. Number 74 is agonia. And it's translated one time in the New Testament when Christ was in the garden and in agony. That's a related Greek word to this word fight. Christ was in agonia. And that's the only time that word is translated. Um, that this word translated as fight. If we go to 1 Timothy 6, it says, beginning in verse 11, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. So this is the fight that the Apostle Paul is talking of. It's the fight of faith, or we could substitute Christ in, in that place, because Jesus is faith. It's the fight of Christ and for Christ. Lay hold on eternal life. We could also substitute Christ for that. Lay hold on Christ. And Christ and the Word are inseparable. So as we lay hold on the Word of God, we're laying hold on Christ and we're fighting. I think a good historical picture would be when Jacob was wrestling with God back in the book of Genesis. Fighting the fight, wrestling with God himself. And and yet, of course, God permitted Jacob to... Uh, maintain the hold to keep wrestling all the night because he was one of God's elect. And concerning the idea of fighting, uh, you know, when we use that kind of language, people can think it's their will, their strength, what they're going to do. Well, look at Colossians 1, and the word fight is translated there in Colossians 1, 29 is striving. Whereunto I also labor, striving or fighting, according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So I fight, or Paul fights, or you fight. The good fight of faith, we're striving uh, with with God himself in, in doing the will of God and following the commandments of the Bible. Yet, ultimately... How are we doing this? It's according to His working, which works in us mightily. That's how Paul could do it. He's a pattern of all the believers. And it's how we're doing it. Uh, the, the word um, fight is also translated in another way in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And the race is the translation of the same word translated as fight. So we're to run with patience the fight 
that is set before us. It's a fight of faith. Especially now, we're in a time of fiery trial of faith. It's a struggle. It's a fight between the individual and God, really. And, of course, those that are gods have God's help because he's working within them, fighting on their behalf or or enabling them to continue to um, inv- be engaged in the spiritual fight. And it's also identified with a race. Now, in Luke 13, verse 24, the same word fight is translated strive again in in Luke 13, 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate, fight to enter in, that good fight of faith. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able when, once the master of house has shut the door. So after May 21, 2011, there's no more ability to enter into the kingdom of heaven because the door is shut. Well, um, Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 9. And there we read of a race also. And striving. The same Greek word is translated as strive or striveth here. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth a prize. So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth, that's um, Strong's number 75, a related Greek word, translated as fight. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. And, and that fits with uh, the statement here in Second Timothy 4. The next verse, it says, after the Lord moves Paul to write, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So, the Apostle Paul speaks of fighting the good fight, finishing the course, and that could be related to the racetrack, the, the course that people run on. And back in 1 Corinthians 9, um, uh, if you remember, in verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all. The Greek word translated as race is stadion, which is the word for furlong. It's, it's the same word, 1,600 furlongs. Or in John, uh, Bethsaida is 15 furlongs off. Everywhere else in the Bible, it's translated as furlong. And uh, they, they were rowing so many furlongs out at sea. Except here, it's translated as race. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth a prize. What's the prize? What's the prize that God has in view? Well, there's the earthly prize uh, because the Lord is pointing to the Olympics and saying, well, they do it to obtain a gold medal. Or, you know, they they run a race to receive 
the earthly prize, but he's speaking to his people uh, when he says they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we do it is what's implied. What do we do? We run a race to obtain an incorruptible crown. And that incorruptible crown would be eternal life. It would be um, receiving a new resurrected body, a new heaven, a new earth, entering into the joy of our Lord. And and so uh, everyone that runs in a race runs all. Only one receives the prize, so run that ye may obtain. We could read this, that, that they which run in a furlong run all. And the interesting thing is that October 7th, 2015 is the 1600th day, but the picture is 1600 furlongs. So that's the last furlong from May 21, 2011. And in order to finish the race that God says, fight the good fight of faith and, and finish at the end of the race, you get an incorruptible crown. Well, uh, October 7th will be the last furlong. It'll be the finish line. The course completes at, on that day, in other words. And, you know, the tape, when I, I don't think I've ever crossed the, the finish line. <laughs> Somebody's already broken the tape. <laughs> but <laughs> the tape is there, and you cross over, you break the tape, and you win the race. Well, that that's the idea. And that's the idea the, the Apostle Paul, a type of the elect, is referring to. He fought a good fight. He finished his course. He kept the faith. And then there's laid up the crown of righteousness that the righteous judge, the righteous judge, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ all the elector appearing. And at the completion of the judgment, God finds no fault in his people. He justifies the righteous. There's no sin in you. The righteous judge makes judgment. A judge can judge either good or bad. If you if you go to trial and, and the judge can sentence you to life in prison, or he can say not guilty, either... Either one's a judgment. The judge makes a judgment, a determination of guilt or innocence. And the righteous judge finds no guilt in any of his people that have appeared before him because there was no sin upon them. All sin was washed away. And, and therefore, the determination, the judgment of the righteous judge on that day at that day is to receive a crown of life, eternal salvation. And I just want to look at one last verse um, before we, we stop here, and that's in James chapter 1. It says in James 1, and, well, too bad Lester's not here. I could have read verse 11 too. I think I'll still read verse 11. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. 
so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. That's the order. Actually, it's found several times in the Bible. First, you're tried. 1 Corinthians 3. There, everyone's laid on the foundation, gold, silver, precious stones. Let's put the fire to it. First you're tried, then you come forth. They come out of Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. First you're tried, then you cross over into the promised land. Or, I know I said that was the last verse and I didn't tell the truth. Uh, Revelation 2, it says in verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. First you're tried, then you get the crown. Look at chapter 3, in verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come on all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Your tried crown of life. That's the order. That's the order. You can be delivered and come out of Egypt. No crown. No crown because you have to first wander 40 years in the wilderness. You can be delivered on May 21, 2011 as far as being saved. No crown. 1,600 days is 40 times 40. Testing, trying, trying. And then you come to the last day, the last furlong, that God just happens to use that particular word. That, you know how many Greek words there are? But he picks the word translated as furlong, and he translates it as race one time to indicate at the end of the race, the furlong, you get the crown of life. And at the end of a period of trial of 40 times 40 days, here we come to October 7th, which will be the last furlong, the end of the race. And the pattern is, first you're tried, then the crown. Then you receive the crown of life. So uh, there, the Apostle Paul, in being used as a type and a pattern of the believers, is speaking of the judgment day of the righteous judge who will make the judgment that that he is a righteous one because of the righteousness of Christ and he will receive that crown. And so too, all them that love his appearing. Everyone that loves his appearing. Well, I was going to go into Matthew but I, I don't. I think I've used up my allotments of extra verses. <laughs> but in in Matthew, when the Lord Jesus came the first time, did everyone love His appearing? When Christ came, who didn't love His appearing? Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. They didn't love His appearing at all. And really, what's underneath that? that knee-jerk reaction, no man knows. Let's stop talking about that. 
because it's uncomfortable. You're talking about the only life we have or will ever have. Deep down, this is everything to the people of the world. And and so they want to get out of that discussion and they want to just jump ahead. Let's jump ahead to October 8th. We'll see you on the 8th, they say. Well, there is an unlikely possibility that that will happen. But the strong likelihood is that God will fulfill His Word and His promises on the 7th. The Bible says there is an end. Surely there is an end. The Bible tells us the characteristics of the end-time generation. Surely this generation qualifies and matches those characteristics without doubt. And the Bible gives us a timeline. And the timeline is pointing to one day again and again as the last day, the last day, the last day. And so there is a very good hope this will be the time. All right, let's stop here and we'll have a word of prayer. Dear Father, we do thank you for all your blessings to us, your patience with us, your long-suffering patience with the world. Up until May 21, 2011, we thank you for giving us patience. Um, for in patience, we possess our souls. And, and Father, we thank you for allowing us to wait on you, for keeping us in the struggle and the fight, not allowing us to, uh, to run, to turn back, but holding us fast as it is all really your doing as you uh, move within your people to will and do of your good pleasure. And Father, we we pray for everyone here. We ask that you would uh, be with each one as they travel home and the team in Philadelphia. May you help them and strengthen them and comfort them, protect them, help help them to not be troubled by the revilings of people. And we pray that you would be with them and may some of your elect encounter them. May you, you bless that whole time there and also in Santiago. May you bless your people that are uh, laboring uh, in an intense way. We pray for Gunther and the whole team. May you be with each one and strengthen them. And Father, we ask for wisdom day by day. Guide us and help us to know what to do and in the days we have remaining. Well, thank you once again for all your blessings and for your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.